Good morning. It's great to be here this morning. Uh, my name is Peter. I'm one of the uh, lay readers in the church. Uh, let's just pray a moment as we begin. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you for the power of your word. We thank you for your body, the church. And we thank you most, or, or, most of all, Lord God, for the gift of your son, Jesus, in whom we have new life. We pray this in your wonderful name. Amen. Okay, well, I'm going to tell, um, let me just get myself sorted out a bit here. Okay. There we are. Okay, well, there was a well-known American journalist, and he was a legal advisor, legal editor of the Chicago Tribune, and he was a confirmed atheist. And... Um, he was you know, used to trawling through the legal evidence for different legal cases uh, in his crime reporting. And uh, his wife one day announced to him that she had become a Christian. And he was a bit uh, surprised at this, and um, he wasn't actually too enthusiastic about it. And he said this, um, I had married one Leslie, the fun Leslie, the carefree Leslie, the risk-taking Leslie, and now I feared she was going to turn into some sort of sexually repressed prude who would trade our upwardly mobile lifestyle for all-night prayer vigils and volunteer work in grimy soup kitchens. Instead, I was presently surprised and even fascinated by the fundamental changes in her character, her integrity, her personal confidence. And eventually, I wanted to get to the bottom of what was prompting these subtle but significant shifts in her life. So I launched out an all-out investigation into the facts surrounding the case for Christianity. That man's name was Lee Strobel. And when he announced, uh, when he decided this, um, he went to interview a number of leading scholars in America. And he researched this and wrote a book, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about, about this, but this man's journey into faith, I think, is a useful um, prelude to our topic today as we're looking into um, our focus on John 17. So I'm going to come back in a minute to Lee Strobel, but just to get you thinking a little bit about that uh, focus, because today we're looking at John 17. And uh, it's a wonderful section in the New Testament, uh, written by the Apostle John, um, and the Word of God. The Word of God, uh, as we know, is active, living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even uh, the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. So we're using the Word of God this morning. And John's Gospel um, here way back, you may remember, in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, uh, we hear of uh, John the Baptist, and um, he sees Jesus, and he says, look, the Lamb of God. And Andrew, one of the disciples, uh, and Peter's brother, and John, hearing John the Baptist say this, then they go and see Jesus, and they say, Rabbi, where are you staying? And Jesus says to them, come, come and see. And so they end up 
by going to sea, and they become followers of Jesus and later disciples and apostles. So today, in our passage today, at the end of the other, the other end of the gospel account in chapter 17, we know that it's the other end of the story. Jesus is approaching the arrest, the suffering, the passion leading up to the cross and the rising from death, which we celebrate at Easter. But before all of this, before the arrest of Jesus, which we read of in chapter 18 of John's Gospel, we get to this chapter in, in um, chapter 17. And it says here, right at the beginning, it says, um, Jesus looks up to heaven and prays, Father, the time has come. So this is the beginning of chapter 17 before our reading today. So right at the start of chapter 17, Jesus looks up to heaven and he prays the Father, the time has come. Well, what was the time he was talking about? It was the appointed hour. Do you remember that when Jesus, if you remember this, Jesus turns the water to wine in the beginning of John's gospel, the wedding feast, he tells Mary, Mary, his mother says, they've got no more wine, they've run out. And he said, my time has not yet come. And later on in chapter 12, Jesus hears from the disciples that some Greeks want to meet with him. And his response, talking to them, is now, I'll just go back there, John chapter 12. Jesus' response to them in verse 23 is, the hour has now come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed, but if it dies, it produces many seeds. Well, Jesus was talking about his death. So what was it about these Greeks who appeared and coming to meet Jesus that meant he said, my hour has now come um, for the Son of Man to be glorified? Well, of course, these Greeks were not Jews, and the Gospel, remember, was the good news for all people. And it was going to be for the Gentiles, not just for the Jews. If you remember the promises to Abraham, your descendants will be as many as the stars in the sky. And this was the promise. And so the arrival of the Greeks was a reminder that his earthly ministry would be coming to an end through events that would be establishing the early church and the bursting out of Israel like peas bursting out of a pod as the gospel went out. So in chapter 17, the words, Father, the time has come. And this reminds us that the time is now, isn't it? Jesus came, and we're in that in-between time, aren't we? As Christians, if we believe in the Lord Jesus, we're waiting for him to come again. So the time is now. And he says, glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. One of the key themes in John's gospel is the fatherhood. I was reading that the word father is used 122 times in John's gospel. So it's a very key relationship. So Jesus' profound, deeply moving prayers while he knew he would have to undertake dreadful suffering at the cross. Elsewhere, he's recording as saying, my soul is overwhelmed. But here in verse 6, he says, I've revealed those you have given me out of the world. And he's talking about the disciples. And he goes on in verse 8 to say, I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me. And this leads to today's brief verses from chapter uh, 17. Here we can see that when we look at chapter 17, there are three sections the first is Jesus prays for himself, that's verses 1 to 5. Then he prays for his disciples, verses 6 to 19. And now, who does he pray for in verses 20 to 
26. He's praying for all believers. He's praying, actually, for us. And it's incredible to think that Jesus prays for us. So, he goes on to say, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Yes, he's praying for us. There's a link with the Old Testament reading today. You may have been a bit puzzled by it, but it's interesting. Uh, Zechariah is this um, prophetic book with all these these visions which can be quite hard to understand. Um, But this is one of a series of visions that Zechariah has. And in chapter 4 of Zechariah, um, just to go back to that, that reading we had, was that the vision of a, a gold lampstand with seven, seven oil lamps. And, and that symbolizes the fullness of God's power through his spirit. And, uh, you know, it says here, um, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. And... Um, it says in, in verse 6 here um, that what, what this, this power would be, uh, and I've just read that actually, so not by my, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And he continues in verse six, 7 to say, the capstone, uh, he talks about the capstone in verse 7. What are you, a mighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become level ground. Then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of God bless it, God bless it. And the capstone, of course, also is an echo from uh, one of the Psalms, and it refers to Jesus, doesn't it? The stumbling stone, but Jesus is the capstone, all right? And the capstone is the stone at the center of the building, and it it keeps everything together. And um, so then Zerubbabel talks about these two olive trees. What are the two olive trees? And this is just going to link into what we're talking about, because the two olive trees represent the combination of king, the Messiah, the anointed one. I remember Queen Elizabeth looking at all this stuff, on the wonderful stuff on the Jubilee. I was looking at an old newspaper the other day, and there's a picture of her on the throne in Westminster Abbey, and there's Archbishop Michael Ramsey anointing her with oil. The king is anointed with oil. So that is one of the images of the olive tree, is a king. And the other image of the olive tree is priest. Jesus also acts as priest, the Messiah who would rescue his people. And so this prophet of Israel, Zechariah, who was actually born in in Babylon and and, and they they had to, they were taken by the Babylonians, the the temple that King Solomon had built had been destroyed by the Babylonians 400 years earlier. And the people of Israel had been dragged off to Babylon. But Zechariah, looking ahead to the future, he could see there was a hope and it was going to be in this king priest who would be coming. Who was this king priest who was to come? And um, the one who would bring all the hopes of the people of God to fruition. And um, so that's what the symbolism of the olive trees are. And um, one key role of the high priest was to intercede with God on behalf of the people. So when we look at John 1720, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. And this is an incredible thing, isn't it? That Jesus prays for us. We think of that role as the priest praying for the people. And when we think about this, this whole context of the church, 
the three verses that proceed in verse 17, 18, and 19 are very important, I think. I just want to touch on them. In verse 17, John writes, Sanct Peter, sorry, Jesus says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. So our theme today is talking about the unity of the church. But one of the key aspects I want to just touch on is the aspect of sanctification. And when we think about the unity of the church, we think about the bride of Christ. We think of the holiness of God. Sanctify in Greek, and any Greek scholars here this morning, it's hagiazo. I'm not a Greek scholar, but I looked up hagiazo means make holy, set apart for sacred use. For them, I sanctify myself that they may be truly sanctified. Jesus prays that we may be truly sanctified. And how can he sanctify himself? Of course, Jesus sanctifies himself by setting him apart to do God's will. He set himself apart to fulfill God's plan to give his life through over, through death on the cross, to save us, but also to, um, in a remarkable way, to make us holy as well. When he says, they may be sanctified, that they may be sanctified, they is the disciples. But the life of the disciples throughout the New Testament is a model for us. Their failings of the disciples, they deserted Jesus after his arrest. Um, they failed him in so many ways. We know that Peter denied Jesus uh, three times, but later he was reinstated. And so, sorting myself out here, yeah. He says, um, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Now, during the lockdown, um, you know, we, we kind of watched probably more movies than we would do normally. Just think about sanctification and holiness. And sometimes you just would turn on the TV. I don't know if you had this experience. Think, what is this that we're watching? What is this BBC offering? You know, what is the choices? What is going on The the actual content of material, of, of entertainment that is available for, for us and also for us as Christians. And, and we think about the BBC, there's a guy, his name is uh, Tim Davy. Do you know who Tim Davy is? I think he's, isn't he the director general of the BBC? I think he is. So, you know, I, maybe we should write, I do not agree that sometimes the, the viewing that we're presented with, because you're watching something, you think, actually, I want to turn this off. It's just not really very nice. And I think that actually we think about our sanctification, our holiness, and we're needing to um, make choices in our culture as well. So Jesus, in this prayer for the disciples, is talking about being made holy. Uh, and how holy are we? Now, I, I've got my L-plate here um, because someone in our family is doing some driving lessons at the moment. But I'm, I'm, we're, all in, we're all learners in this area of sanctification, aren't we? We're all learners. And, um, you know, this is, this is very much a point of it. But um, because God knows inside out, he knows what we're like. And um, for Lee Strobel, you know, he began to see that there was noticeable differences in her life as she was starting off in the Christian life. And, um, you know, we need to explain the gospel in our culture. Um, and, you know, when I first became a Christian, one of the best pieces of advice I got is keep a short account with God. When we mess up, it's good to be very quick to fall on our knees and to confess all. So we seek to grow in holiness. And this is the context which Jesus is praying for all the believers. 
In verse 20, Jesus prays for us all. And um, through this message, and uh, yes, we are the link for the next generation. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray for those who will believe in me through their message. So you think about the disciples 2,000 years ago and think about us here now, and the disciples believed in the message of Christ, and then all the generations that have gone through of, you know, that, that process of, of continuing to share the gospel, of continuing to, to live the Christian life for the next generation down. And it, it's such a responsibility, isn't it? It's a challenge of the message. Um, and um, Jesus has faith that there would be those who would believe in him through the message of the first disciples. Now, I, I dug out a book in the, in the garage at home, and it, it, it's, a, it, it's, a, it's a good book. Do you know what book this is? <laughs> um, it says E. Bibble on the, on the spine, um, and it was, I think, my great-grandfather's Bible in, in Welsh, actually. And I was looking through it, and I realized yesterday, I was trying to, I'm not very good at the uh, Roman numerals, but MDCC5, it's 1808, this book dates back to, it's quite old, isn't it? I don't know, maybe some of you have got old family Bibles somewhere. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's quite moving to hold in here, it's quite fragile, uh, but it somehow speaks to me, because over 200 years ago, the gospel was being preached in Wales, and, and you know, 1904, 1905, there was this massive revival in Wales, where 100,000 people came to the Lord in one year. Um, and, um, but today, the chapel where I think he preached is now converted into a home, um, which is sad. Um, but um, Joe and I recently went back to West Wales, and we, we, we were very near there. And in fact, God is still at work in that place, in that area. We know that. We saw that. Um, but uh, my point is that we are, we are part of the link in the chain for the next generation, but God has no grandchildren. I cannot say, I've got a very old Bible. My great-grandfather was a Christian, a strong Christian. That means I am assured of, you know, I'm, I know where I'm going. I don't need to worry about any kind of Christian stuff at all because I know that my great-grandfather was committed. It doesn't work like that, does it? Every generation needs to hear the gospel of Christ. And... Um, and that was the same for um, Lee Struble. Just to re link back very briefly to Struble, we'll go back to our text in a moment. Uh, Lee Struble said this. Um, he began to look through the evidence, and then he said, after he talked to a number of academics, he said, when Jesus was crucified, his followers were discouraged and depressed. They had no confidence that Jesus had been sent by God. They had been taught that God would not let his Messiah suffer death, so they all disappeared. And yet they were willing to spend later the rest of their life committed, proclaiming without any payoff from a human point of view. Because after a short period of time, we see them abandoning everything, but then they regathered and they began to spread the incredible message of Jesus Christ, that was the Messiah of God. So that incredible change impacted Lee Strobel from this context where there was uh, complete discouragement, the, the disciples had disappeared completely, and then they were prepared to give up their lives. And that was the point for Lee Strobel that made him decide that the gospel was true. And 
So what is it then, when we think about the power of the gospel, we think about the generations of the gospel, we think of Jesus praying for all the believers, what is it then, the most important thing that God wants for his church? He goes on in verse 21, I pray that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. And the message of Jesus, those who will believe in me should be one, that we should be united, we should be united through the message and, um, and, and how exactly should we be one? In, in Ephesians chapter 4, it tells us this. It says um, that 4, 2 to 4, very briefly, uh, and it says this. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit. We are urged to be united, all of them to be one, just as Father, you are in me and I am in you. So this is how the model for us of unity is. And we're talking about the mystery of the Trinity, the degree of the oneness that Jesus Christ has with the Father incredibly is given as the model of how we should be together as a church, as the body of Christ. This is what Christ is saying to us. All right, so um, just as you and me are one, it's such a challenge, the model for our Christian life. Is the relationship in the Father and the Son. But what is the purpose of this? And Jesus goes on to say, why is it that we should be one it is because may you, they also be in us, so that the world may believe, so that the world may believe you have sent me. Isn't that incredible? The reason God wants us, Jesus wants us to be united, is so that the world may believe that God sent Jesus. May they be brought to complete unity to know that the world, you sent me and have loved me them, even as you have loved me. And he actually repeats this. And uh, so this incredible, um, one commentator puts it like this. As the display of genuine love amongst the believers attests or provides evidence to that they are Jesus' disciple, so this display of unity is so compelling, so unworldly, that their witness as to who Jesus is becomes explainable only if Jesus truly is the revealer who the Father has sent. So it's incredible. The only explanation, this unity is so compelling, so unworldly. So this is a massive topic, isn't it? We could spend lots of time, I thought we'd give post-its and write things, have discussions. How is it that we could be closer, be more united? How, how, what, what are the characteristics in the church that show that we are like this? Um, what things, what's the one thing that makes us distinctively united? Or how could we work to being more effective in seeing unity? And of course it is with God's help. Sometimes we see a glimpse. Do you know what I mean? Do you sometimes see a glimpse of that? A, a glimpse of what that unity actually might look like. There's a glimpse of it. And one of the glimpses I have is, um, in, I'm privileged to be on the World Mission Committee. And over the lockdown, we had the video Zoom links with, we were praying together for mission, and there suddenly, there was Phil and Anna, North Macedonia, suddenly on the screen, there were the Piets in Bolivia, and then from Canada, with his family, Amir, who we prayed for for so many, on the screen together, 
and then Cherith from Liverpool together, and, and then other, the rest of us who were kind of on the committee for the, the different mission societies, etc. And we would pray together. I think, isn't this what it's about, where we are all together praying together for the needs? You'd suddenly hear a cock crowing, and it was in Bolivia in the backyard of, of the Piet's home, you know. And you know, it's an incredible sense. And I thought, well, that is a bit of what this unity is about because this is not just us in Stoughton, but it's a global thing, isn't it? And it, it, it sometimes... So I think as a church, it's a challenge to us. It's a, it's a wonderful challenge to us. Um, but I had a taste of that. And sometimes it's like a taste of heaven, praying for immediate needs. You know, we had that wonderful prayer meeting, the Unite prayer meeting. That was a wonderful time. And, and looking for these opportunities. But most of all, I think it is where we come before the Lord and we say, Lord, what is it that, how do you want me to be involved in this process of us getting closer together? What is it that you have for me to do? Because there are 101 different things we could be doing, but we can't be doing them all. So all of this is in the midst of the hurting, damaged, and for many traumatized world we live in today. There are so many ways we're seeking to build unity. Um, but the key to all is seeking what is God saying to us at this time? What particularly is God saying to us at this time? And uh, I'll get my papers in a muddle. So that's um, just coming to an end now. So he goes on. We don't have time to go through the whole of this text. It's a really deep text. But all I would say is that he goes on to say, I have given, verse 22, I've given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity again to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you've given me because you love me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. And one aspect of this thing about unity, this whole thing, when we look at the future we have in store and uh, we look to, to, to the book of Revelation and we know that God's plan is for his church. Uh, and as we're, as we're praying with Tom G coming and all the excitement of the future, how, as a church, can we become more united? What individual action should we be taking? What communal action should we be taking to draw us closer together? Because we know that God's purposes are perfect and it is countercultural. In John, um, in, 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 the, in the book of Revelation, chapter 7, ultimately, the unity that we will have if we believe in the Christ is the promise of eternal life. And we're just going to end now. But after this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude, and no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes. They were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne of God and worshipped. Amen.